your support and your encouragement. So I hope you'll take the opportunity to visit uh, with Dave and uh, connect with him on that. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at the standards that we have for other people and at what the Bible has to say about treating one another with grace and gentleness rather than with criticism and condemnation. And I, I ran across a great story about that this past week. Seems that a young man was uh, at that age where he's wanting to get married, and he really wanted his parents' blessing. And so he found a likely young woman, fell in love with her. Uh, he, th- he thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to take her home, introduce her to my mom and dad, and they're going to give me their blessing. We'll get married. We'll ride off into the sunset together. It'll be lovely. Well, he brought the girl home. And uh, mom was not impressed. In fact, she began to criticize this young lady unmercifully to a point that he had felt, the young man felt he had no other option but to break up and to go find another girl, which he did. Brought her home, same result. Mom would have nothing to do with this young lady. And then with the third girl, Came, came home with her, deeply in love, excited to have her meet his parents, and, uh, and mom just wouldn't have anything to do with this girl, just criticized her up at one side and down the other, and and young man was kind of at a loss, felt like he had to break up because he really wanted his parents' blessing. But he went to one of his friends and he said, he said, look, I don't know what to do. Three different girls, they're all high-class young women, and my mother will not bless my relationship with any of these girls. I don't understand. His friend's very wise. He said, I'll tell you what you do. Look around campus here and find a girl who's just like your mom. Be perfect. Well, it took a lot of looking. But he finally found a girl who was just like his mother in every way. And they fell in love and their relationship began to progress. And he thought, well, now is the time to bring her home and I will finally receive my parents' blessing. So he called his buddy up and said, hey, I've got the girl. I want you to pray for this weekend. She's going home with me. Um, I'm going to introduce her to my parents. So call me on Monday and and ask me how it went because I'm pretty sure this is going to work. So he took her home, they had the weekend and so forth, buddy calls up on Monday, he says, well, tell me how it went, he goes, I had to break up, he said, why is that, he goes, surely your mom liked her, he goes, yeah, mom thought she was great, but my father can't stand her, (laughs) ouch, (laughs) ouch, (laughs) right, (laughs) um, We can hopefully all laugh at situations like that, but the reality of the issue that it identifies is not a laughing matter. One of the things that we love sometimes as human beings is to evaluate other people by our standards. Not necessarily biblical standards, just our standards. And to criticize and condemn those who do not measure up to whatever we feel the standard is they ought to attain is. 
And in the portion of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to be looking at today, Jesus has some important things to teach us about that, about how we treat one another, and about what we say with our tongues, and the attitude that we develop toward each other. And so I think we better pray and ask God to give us ears to hear what he has to say from his word. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do sometimes love to act as if we are the standard and the measure by which other people ought to be judged and evaluated. And Father, we pray that your word would judge and evaluate our hearts, that we might see where we fall short of the standard that you have set, and in repentance confess and seek forgiveness from you and a new way of living by grace and with gentleness toward others. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Uh, We are living, I think, in an interesting time. You can be as strongly opinionated as you want about all kinds of things. You can be opinionated about sports, about politics, about food, about cars, about companies, about consumer goods, about restaurants, about relationships, right? In fact, there are all kinds of websites and uh, internet things uh, devoted to the spreading and propagation of your opinion. You can create yourself a blog, a website. Uh, You can leave comments on other people's blogs and websites. Uh, You can uh, operate through Yelp and Pinterest and Facebook and Twitter and so on, right? Uh, The one thing that you cannot do, though, in our society is express any kind of moral disapproval of anyone else's choices. That's the one sin that we acknowledge as a culture is moral disapproval of other people. Uh, In fact, if you are a Christian and you express moral disapproval of someone else's choices, you will often be told, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is the one verse that every non-Christian seems to know, right? Judge not that you be not judged, right? Didn't Jesus say to you Christians, don't judge, right? You're not supposed to judge. Don't judge me, right? They'll say that. And it's not really uh, an, an indication that they want to bring all of their life into conformity with Scripture, right? It's more an indication of... It's more a way of saying, in, a, in, a, uh, uh, in some kind of a rhetorical fashion, shut up, right? Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me that what I'm doing isn't blessed or godly or whatever, right? And it seems for the, uh, the, the world around us, the ideal Christian is one who is undiscerning, who is indulgent of every kind of behavior, who is an all-accepting invertebrate, Right? Someone who's totally spineless. Uh, Someone who may possess moral convictions on a personal level, but they don't want to share them with anyone else because they don't want to interrupt anybody else's good time, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Is that what Jesus is calling us to when he says, 
Judge not that you be not judged. That we just have to uh, stand back and let everybody, let their freak flag fly and never say anything about it to anybody. Is that what we're supposed to do as believers? Uh, I don't think that it is. In fact, I don't think that that is what Jesus is saying at all. I think what he is correcting is the tendency that we have to be hypercritical of each other and to make ourselves the standard by which other people are evaluated. And if they don't measure up to me, well then, they don't measure up. And in fact, if you look at the context of the, the other verses that are there, he, sa- he repeats this word several times, the word brother. So a lot of what he has to say here has to deal with relationships within the body of Christ, within the church, in other words. How do we treat one another within the church? He's not talking about doing away with moral discernment, but with destructive criticism in the church. He's talking about the tendency we have to sinfully hold people to a standard that has nothing to do with the Bible and everything to do with our own self-righteousness and our own superiority and our own feelings of superiority to other people. And he's rebuking those who set themselves up as the, uh, as the measure and standard to which everyone else has to attain and who criticize and condemn everybody who doesn't meet what they think is the right way of going. Uh, judge not is not a calling, I don't think, to reject discernment or to avoid offering needed correction, but it's a command to when you correct people to do so out of a loving and gracious concern that is genuine rather than out of self-righteous pride. Right? There's a difference there. There really is. You know, there's one way of correcting somebody which is actually concerned for their welfare. And there's another way of correcting somebody which is not really about them, but about making yourself feel better or more superior to someone else, right? And so Jesus is commending, uh, 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 commending to us the idea of if you're going to correct, correct somebody, correct them in grace, first of all, and out of concern for them rather than out of pride. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, it's oftentimes easier to see other people's shortcomings than it is to see my own. And since I know I'm not alone in that, let me just say this. Uh, I think in verse 2, we need to hear, we need to hear what Jesus is saying there in verse 2. He says, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words... We all know there's a final evaluation day coming, right? Scripture says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's two kinds of judgment in the Bible, right? There's judgment like at a criminal trial. That's what unbelievers face. And you are pronounced guilty of your sin and condemned as a result. That's not the kind that believers will experience. But there is a kind of judgment that we will experience, and that kind of judgment is more like the Olympics. You know, criminal trials and at the Olympics, they both have people called judges. But they are rendering different kinds 
of judgment. In the one case, it's guilty or innocent. That's the judgment unbelievers face. In the, at the Olympics, though, they have people called judges, too. And those people are different, right? They award uh, rewards, or, or in some cases, the absence of rewards, based on performance to a standard, right? Uh, how faithful were you, fellow Christian, right? Will you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, come enjoy your master's happiness or not, right? Will you receive the things that the scripture talks about in terms of crowns and so forth in, the, in Revelation? Or in Paul's epistles, he mentions a couple of, of uh, rewards, you know, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, etc. Will you receive those things? There's an evaluation that takes place. And Jesus says, look, if you want to understand how that stand, how, what standard we use, it's real simple. We use the same standard that you use for everybody else that you encounter. So if you are a gracious and gentle uh, person who treats everybody else with graciousness and gentleness and you cut everybody a little bit of slack, that's the standard we'll use for you when you stand before the Lord to be evaluated. If, on the other hand, you have a, a standard that is hard and unbending and judgmental and condemnatory toward everybody else, Guess how much slack you will get? The same as you gave to everyone else. Okay? This is a very serious thing. And what he's saying essentially is underlining the point that we are to, we are to be people of grace and gentleness in how we deal with one another. Especially in the church of Christ, we who have been recipients of grace ought to be dispensers of grace. Amen? You ought to cut people a break, in other words. <laughs> Understand that other people are just as fallen as you are and give them a little bit of slack. You know, don't assume that this person is out to get you or meant to hurt you or whatever, right? Uh, we're to believe the best about one another. We're to give each other, like I say, a little bit of room to screw up. Because we're going to. Amen? We are. We're going to. And so Jesus is not saying you're never to express moral disapproval of people for what they're doing. But as you do something like that, you know, the objective ought to be to come alongside them and help them with a spirit of grace. Not in a spirit of uh, self-righteous pride looking down on them and saying, can you believe what? Here's one. Can you believe what the pastor said last week? I know none of you would ever say that, all right? <laughs> but can you believe what our elders did, right? There's a way of approaching that issue, and there's a way not to. Amen? Not that you can't ever disagree. Not that you can't ever uh, think that what somebody did, including your pastor, was wrong. I, I'm probably wrong six ways uh, every Sunday. But, but the point is that how we approach one another ought not to be from a spirit of condemnation, but out of a spirit of help and grace. Amen? All right. Let's read on here. Uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, When David sinned with Bathsheba, he did not immediately repent. Did you know that? After he sinned, it was about a nine-month period that he remained out of fellowship with God. Um, But after nine months had passed, God graciously sent the prophet Nathan with a story to tell, and it was a great story. He tells him, David, uh, there was a man, a rich man, who had a number of flocks and herds. He had vast wealth. He had all these flocks and herds, and he lived next door to a poor man. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb that was a pet that he kept in his house, that his children played with and that uh, slept among his family members like one of the family. And then a traveler came by to see the rich man, and when he came, uh, the rich man decided that he would take the poor man's little pet ewe lamb and slaughter it as food for his guest. And he said, what do you think should happen, David? And David immediately, out of just righteous indignation, says, that man, that man deserves to die. But he, should, he will have to pay back fourfold what he took because he was unjust and he had no pity on the poor man in a lower position than him. And then Nathan, this is why I named my son Nathan, right? Nathan, the holiness of God speaks right here, right? And he says, I I have two sons, John, the beloved disciple, right? And Nathan, the prophet of God, right? (laughs) And I'm hoping that that's how they turn out, right? Um, But Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man. You are the rich man who stole what did not belong to you from a man who had done you no harm. In fact, if you read the, if you read the accounts, it's worse than that. One of the men who was David's personal bodyguard is, was, Uriah, was Uriah the Hittite. Okay? And in addition to that, his, his wife, Bathsheba, was the granddaughter of David's personal advisor. In other words, this is not some nobody. This is not someone that you don't know who this is. And David was cut to the heart because he could see someone else's sin very, very clearly and what should happen. But he couldn't see his own. He had covered it all up. He had had Uriah murdered, essentially. And then he had married the widow who was already pregnant right away so that no one would know. No one would be able to do the math and find out that she was already pregnant with his child when he married her. And Nathan confronted him. And David did indeed repay fourfold. Four of his sons died 
in the aftermath of David's sin. And he had a log in his eye. Amen? In fact, the word, the word that's translated log here literally means something like beam. Okay? So you need to imagine something like this here. Running along the roof, the roof here that's supporting the rafters. Right? Sticking out of his face, he has this beam coming out, <laughs> okay? And uh, one thing that you'll notice, if you were to actually stick that in your eye, it would become very chronically difficult to see, right? You won't be able to see anything else. And he says, we, we walk around, Jesus says, like people with a, a beam sticking out of our face who want to go around and pick out a piece of sawdust out of someone else's. And we misjudge sometimes the proportion of sin that's really present in our own life. We think that we're all ophthalmologists who are perfectly suited for doing this kind of delicate work, right? But in reality, we are blind to our own sin, which is just as obvious to other people as a beam sticking out of our face would be. And yet we sometimes go around trying to pull the speck out of somebody else's, right? Any of y'all, raise your hand if this has happened to you. This has happened to me. You ever been to a doctor where, um, I've been to the doctor and the guy is heavier than me. And he will give me a 10-minute lecture on exercise with a pack of smokes in his breast pocket on his shirt and I go um physician heal thyself amen <laughs> right okay I know I need to go jogging but geez you know maybe you aren't the ideal candidate for passing on the the uh the discussion about health right um and what Jesus is calling us to here is to avoid the kinds of obvious hypocrisy that we fall victim to. That we become so concerned and so consumed with other people and their sin that we miss the glaringly obvious sin that's present in our own life. In the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to lovingly confront one another and to deal with one another in a spirit of gentleness and help each other flee from sin that's why jesus repeatedly uses in this passage the word brothers because love requires sometimes dealing with sin in other people's life uh, for example let me quote you paul out of galatians chapter 6 1 to 2 brothers if anyone is caught in a transgression you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have to be careful in that, that we do our confronting when necessary in love, but also do it out of a holy life ourselves, so that we don't appear to that person that we're trying to help and don't appear to a watching world as a complete hypocrite who refuses to deal with his or her own stuff while going about you know, pulling the speck out of everybody else. Uh, if you extract the beam first, you can see clearly to deal with other people. Amen?
Um, we ought to call people for, to the same righteous standard that we ourselves obey and not to a different standard than what we're willing to do. Uh, last thing here, uh, one, one more verse we need to look at. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, what does that mean? It's part of this section. Uh, I actually, I tried to, I, I studied this and, and it took me a few days to kind of ponder on it and figure out exactly what Jesus is talking about. Heard a lot of people use the expression, well, that's pearls before swine. But what does that mean? What's this about? I'll tell you what I think it means. Dogs and pigs to a Jewish person are the, the most unclean of unclean animals for the, this very simple reason. If you have a dog, every dog will eat his own filth. And a pig will wallow in it. And so they are, to a Jew, the most unclean animal imaginable. And so dogs and pigs became, uh, to the Jewish writers of Scripture, a way of referring to people whose nature is such that they enjoy their unrighteousness and enjoy their sin. Uh, it's a non-Christian. In other words, it's a term that refers to non-Christians. G, uh, John says in uh, Revelation chapter twenty-two, verse fifteen, he talks about the holy city all through uh, chapter 22 in the New Jerusalem, and he says that there are walls and gates around this city to protect it from the, the entry of any person who is unholy, and he says outside are the dogs. And he doesn't mean beefy and fluffy and, you know, spot and buddy and whatever, you know. I mean, he doesn't mean those. He means all of the wicked people are outside of the holy city and not allowed in. And so when Jesus is saying, don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs, I think what he's telling us is not to waste our breath exhorting unbelievers to live as if they were Christians. In other words, this verse 1 to 6, chapter 7, verse 1 to 6, has to do with us in the body of Christ. And how we treat each other. And this, uh, I mean, this, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 to 5 has to do with that. And verse 6 here has to do with how we interact with the outside world. And sometimes I have, I have seen this where, um, you know, you'll meet a Christian and they'll say, can you believe that so-and-so is doing that? And I will say to them, in some cases, Yes, I can believe that. And I'll say, well, why? I say, well, what do you expect? They're a non-Christian. They do not know Jesus. They do not have the Holy Spirit within them. They do not, therefore, possess a new nature. They are not a new creature in Christ. Uh, they have not been created uh, as God's workmanship to do good works which God prepared in advance for them to do. They are not regenerate. They do not know God. So what do I expect them to behave like? Non-Christians, right? And sometimes in America, I think we are shocked that 
the non-Christian population of America, which is now the third largest group of non-Christians in any country in the world, I don't know if you know that, there are roughly 225 million non-Christians in the United States of America. So China has more non-Christians, India has more non-Christians, and then the U.S. is third on that list, okay? And we look at our country and we go, well, why is everything so screwed up? And you go, well, because there's a whole bunch of non-Christians who don't know Jesus. So what's our job? It isn't to go out and be the morality patrol for everybody and say, you ought not do that. You ought not do that. That's wrong. Uh, the Bible says that, that's, that, will, that, is a, that is a sin and you shouldn't do that. Okay, That's not our job. What's our calling? To lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Because if they come to faith in Jesus Christ, then their life will be transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit's presence within them. But in the meantime, we're not to, to use Jesus' expression, throw to the dogs what is holy and to give pearls to pigs because they will not appreciate it. They will not understand it. And they will not have any um, uh, appreciation for us as a result. All they will feel is condemned and judged and reject everything we have to say as a result. That's the trample underfoot. What's our calling? It is not to correct everybody out there in the world. It is to be God's holy people within the body of Christ and then to carry the gospel to those outside. Amen? Amen. All right. So here's the point of this whole passage. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're to do two things based on what Jesus says here. Number one, put away hypercriticism of your brothers and sisters because you are not the standard and I am not the standard of righteousness and holiness before God. Jesus will take care of them. Okay? And number two, put away hypocrisy as you deal with one another. Put away hypocrisy as you deal with one another. So in other words, do not come alongside to correct somebody and help somebody out of the situation they're in without first dealing with your own sin and your own stuff. Amen? Basic stuff. Being a Christian, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you deal with us in complete holiness, but also with, com with complete grace and patience. That you are a holy God who calls us to a holy standard and yet forgives us when we screw up. And you are so gentle and so good to us. Father, we pray that we would be the same as we deal with each other. That we not, we not hypocritically focus on other people's sin or we ignore our own. And we not set ourselves up as the standard that we can criticize other people from on high. That we deal with one another as you deal with us in love and in grace. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.